I'm going to read you, before we uh, get into our sermon, I'm going to go ahead and read a psalm. And I will tell you that this is the very, very, very middle of the Bible. It's also the shortest uh, paragraph, in the, or I'm sorry, the shortest chapter in the entire Bible. All right, it's the 117th Psalm. And I might as well say this just because a lot of people, if they watch this, they may be under that, uh, um, you know, there was an email that went out and people still have it on YouTube that the 118th Psalm is the middle of the Bible. Okay, and they go through this elaborate thing showing how the 118th Psalm, the 8th verse, is the very, very middle of the Bible and all this stuff, and it's not. There are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. Therefore, it has to be an odd number, not an even number, okay? The 117th Psalm is the middle of the Bible, and in itself, it's a marvel because of the way that the Bible is structured around the 117th Psalm. But imagine this, the very middle of the Bible, the middle of God's word begins with these words to a group of people that are unexpected. Listen to this. 100, Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. For his merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Okay, and our sermon today is going to be Ruth. It's chapter 3. 1 through 5, and it's called Go Down to the Threshing Floor. So I want to go ahead and I want to read you uh, these particular uh, verses before we get into it. This is a wonderful uh, section. It's a little detailed, and uh, I'm going to say some things that a lot of people may be confused about. It's on a level of 1 to 10. It's probably about a 7 or 8 on uh, complexity. But if you grasp what I'm going to tell you in these verses, it really makes some wonderful uh, applications for your theology in the New Testament. Anyway, uh, Ruth 3, starting in the first verse, says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young women you were with, is, it, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself, put on your best garment, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be, when he lies down, that you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go in, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what you should do. And she said to her, all that you say to me, I will do. Today we're going to enter right into the third chapter of Ruth, which continues the story of redemption and wedded love between Boaz and Ruth. In order to properly understand what this third chapter will relay, it needs to be compared with what was already seen in chapter 2. At that time, the two women, Naomi and Ruth, had just returned from Moab, and they were in a state of distress. It was Ruth who stepped forward to accomplish the work necessary to sustain the life of the two of these women. She offered to go and glean in the fields of Bethlehem, and Naomi consented, submitting to the will of Ruth. Ruth was not sent into the fields. She volunteered to go into them. Now in chapter 3, when the time of hardships have lessened because of Ruth's efforts, Naomi now takes the lead by initiating the action to be taken. And it is an action directed towards securing a place of rest for Ruth in the house of her own husband. And so there's a contrast which is evident here. The idea of working in order to help Naomi originates with Ruth, but the thought of happiness and contentment for Ruth and the carrying on of the family name originates with Naomi. Despite the originator of each, though, it is Ruth in whom the mission is accomplished. 
when she went to glean, it was as a foreigner and a uh, widow. And she went there to exercise her rights in that status to work in the fields of Israel. Four times in chapter 2, her Moabite origin was noted. She went with no particular place to glean, but merely where happenstance brought her. And she had no set plan. Whatever happened would be at the providence of the Lord. On the other hand, she's now going to be given definite instructions to go to a specific place with a set plan. Instead of uncertainty in what she would do, she's going to have a set purpose, and she's going to be determined in her mission. Instead of widow's garments, she's going to be wearing her finest apparel. And yet, she will be going with the redemption rights of a widow under the law of Israel. Never in this chapter will her country of origin be mentioned. The last chapter showed her rights to glean in order for her and her mother to physically live. This chapter will show her rights to be redeemed so that the family name will continue to live. In both chapters, though, there's a difficult task to undertake, and in some ways, the second is actually more difficult than the first. As a gleaner, she could have been physically abused or humiliated, and yet she found grace. In this chapter, though, it's unlikely that she would be physically abused, but she still could be humiliated, or she could cause another person to be humiliated. In the previous chapter, she acted openly, and yet with a uh, state of humility in her mind. She was faithfully working to feed herself and her mother-in-law. In this chapter, she will act secretly and with even greater humility to carry on the name of the family. In the previous chapter, she acted to overcome hunger and physical needs. In this chapter, she will act to overcome love and to fulfill her emotional needs. In the previous chapter, she demonstrated her promised faithfulness to Naomi. In this chapter, she will demonstrate obedience to Naomi. In both chapters, what is often mistaken as wrongdoing in Naomi for allowing Ruth to venture out is actually a credit to her. The faithfulness of Ruth shows that Naomi had truly won her love and that Ruth felt indebted to her for that affection. And in both chapters, we cannot assign our modern code of ethics or law upon the actions of either of these women. In both the gleaning and in the attempt to secure a kinsman redeemer, they're conducting themselves under the provisions of the law. Okay, this is the law of Israel, and it is within the accepted customs which are derived from that law. Ruth had the right to glean, and the additional blessings which were heaped upon her were by the grace of the one who granted them. But in granting them, it naturally led to the hope of fulfilling the second right. If Boaz had been harsh to her, then Naomi and Ruth would never have entered into exercising the second right, the right of redemption. Our text verse today comes from Jeremiah chapter 31. It's the second and third verses. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when I went to give him rest, the Lord has appeared to me of old saying, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. The Lord allows hardships into our lives for his own reasons, but he also intends for his people to find rest and grace in him. These two are not contradictory at all either. Instead, we often merely fail to see that the hardships are leading us to our place of rest. Naomi and Ruth had hardships that most of us are never going to know in our lives, and yet they were guided by the hand of God each step of the way. They truly found grace in Ruth's happenstance arrival in the fields of Boaz. And today, we will see them also look for rest in his care. 
whatever hardship you're facing, it is being used for a good end. And when the grace comes, it's going to be far sweeter than it would have been without first going through that hardship. These lessons continuously come forth as we read and contemplate God's superior word. And so let's turn to that word again today and may God speak to us through his word and may his glorious name ever be praised. Three thoughts for you. The first one is securing a place of rest. This is verses one and two. In the law of Moses, there's a provision that if a man dies without having a son, his brother is to go into the woman and raise up a child in the dead brother's name. This is how it's recorded in Deuteronomy 25. And I read you this, this verse last week as well. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as a wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. This right is actually the right of the surviving widow. It is something that she can demand of him. And there's a provision that if the man doesn't fulfill her request, that he is to be marked as a public and open shame in Israel. This was something that actually predated the law in a cultural sense, as we saw in Genesis 38 in the account of Judah and Tamar. In essence, it shows the importance of preserving the family spirit and the family body within the nation of a people through pro, uh, procreation or propagation, all right, through having a child, in other words. If this is so, and it is, then we can further contemplate who Naomi pictures, who Ruth pictures, and what the ultimate purpose of the book of Ruth is given for. Each chapter and each verse is leading us through a snapshot of a portion of redemptive history and showing us, at the same time, the marvelous work of God in and through his son, Jesus Christ. Although the law doesn't specifically mention the details of a close relative other than a brother fulfilling the rights of the widow, it is implied throughout this entire story, and thus it was an accepted custom in Israel at this time. This is the basis for the verses we're going to see today as we begin with the first verse of chapter 3. Verse 1, then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her. Naomi initiates the details in this chapter. Boaz is shown in interest in Ruth, and she may at the same time be disheartened, wondering where life is leading her. While gleaning, she would have seen Boaz daily and received his grace and felt, you know, productive and helpful towards Naomi. And yet at the same time, she may have been a lady who was downcast in her soul. She's desiring to have a husband to raise up the name of Malone. Naomi perceived this. And so she decides it's time to take the measures into her own hand for the benefit of her beloved daughter-in-law, Ruth. Verse 1 goes on. My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Her words here, though given as a question, are actually a statement of affirmation. In essence, she says, my daughter, I shall seek security for you that it may be well with you. As the parent in the society and within the culture at this time, it is her duty and her responsibility to arrange for the marriage for the child, okay? And this is exactly what seeking security implies. The word in Hebrew is manoach, and it implies rest, such as in a place of rest, like when Noah's ark settled on the mountains of Ararat. He rested there, and it's a play on his name because his name, Noach, means rest. And so it implies a place, but it also implies a state of rest, such as when there's freedom from labor resulting in general ease and content contentment, such as when Adam was placed in the garden before the fall. This is what Naomi is relaying. 
she intends for Ruth to be granted a place of rest in a marriage which would be for her comfort, for her contentment, and for peace for both her body and her soul. Ruth has steadfastly worked in the harvest field, and now Naomi will look to give her body a rest. And she's certainly lonely, she's frustrated, and she's feeling like a fifth wheel as well. And so Naomi is going to look for a place of rest for her spirit also. The words from her to Ruth are exquisitely simple and to the point in what they imply. Ruth, I'm going to find you a good husband to take care of you. In chapter 1, this was Naomi's desire for both of her daughters-in-law. At that time, she said this to them, Go return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. When she spoke those words, all three of them, all of their hearts were filled with sorrow and uncertainty. But now there's comfort and hope. At that time, there was self-forgetting on Naomi's part in hopes of a better future in store for each of those two daughters-in-law. Now there is again self-forgetting in hopes of a better life for Ruth. Because Ruth refused to forget Naomi and instead clung tightly to her, Naomi is returning the love and looking for her to be united to a man whom she can now cling to. Naomi's words, though stated as a question, should be taken as a statement which expresses an intentional result. To be a wife is to be secure and at rest, and so it's assumed to be a good thing. And so the words, that it may be well with you, convey the idea of that intent. And so we can see that Boaz is not just a close relative, but he is a place of security and rest. As Parker notes about this verse, Menucha, meaning that word, manoach, meaning rest, means an asylum of rest, a protection of honor, a security that cannot be violated. And then in its last signification, it means the very omnipotence and pavilion of God. In this respect, Boaz was the type of Christ. Understanding this, we can certainly see a glimpse of the work of the Lord himself. In him is our rest and our contentment and our peace as well. This idea of rest as a stated aim is given, for example, in Isaiah chapter 63, where it says these words, as a beast goes down into the valley and the spirit of the Lord causes him to rest, so you lead your people to make yourself a glorious name. And again, in the New Testament, we see that joining to him, meaning to Jesus Christ, through faith is what brings us to our state of rest. In Hebrews 4.3, it explicitly states this, for we who have believed do enter that rest. When we understand who Ruth pictures and who Boaz pictures, we can very clearly see the beauty of Naomi's words to her realized in our relationship with Jesus. And this is exactly, we were talking about this earlier in the uh, Bible study. This is exactly what happened when God created Adam. He didn't create Adam in the garden. He created Adam outside of the garden. And it says twice that he placed him in the garden. The second time that he placed him in the garden, the, he, they used the word yanak, which is the same word. It means to rest. It's what Noah is based on, yanak, to rest. He was rested in the garden. So when you see your translation in the Bible that says that he was placed in the garden to tend and keep it, most, most translations say that. That is not a good analysis of what he was doing. He wasn't there to work in the garden. He was there to do something else. And those two words can be translated in a different way, to worship and to serve. And that was the intent of putting him in the garden, was to worship and to serve his creator. Well, he fell, and out of the garden he went. 
And ever since then, we've been looking for our place of rest once again, which is pictured here in this book of Ruth and which is found in Jesus Christ. So that on the very last page of the Bible, it says that we will worship and we will serve our creator for all eternity. Not tend and keep his garden. We're there in a garden of delight, worshiping and serving him in his presence for all eternity. This is all being pictured right here in this beautiful story of Ruth. It's a picture of the redemption of man. Oh, precious rest of God, blissful and filled with joy. As we trust in Jesus and place our souls in his hands. By faith we call out to him and his grace he does employ. He bestows it upon all who trust from all nations and all lands. In him we find our rest because in him we do believe. He fulfilled the law and died to give us life. And in him alone do we eternal life receive because in him has ended all our enmity and strife. Yes, O God, we praise you for the marvelous work of Jesus. We thank you for this wondrous gift which you have bestowed upon us. Verse 2. Now Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? Now what is probably very happy news for Ruth, Naomi mentions Boaz in the context of her rest. Though he's older, he's demonstrated exceptional kindness to her and she is probably more attached to him than to any other man that she may have met. In Naomi's words, she implies that she has a right to recommend the course of action that she will now convey to Ruth by using the term moda'at, to describe him. He is a relative who is aware of her circumstances and who should be aware of his obligations to the family. This is the only time that this word moda'at is used in the entire Bible. It's a word which is used in the feminine form. It comes from the idea of to know. Now in chapter 2, the word is used in its masculine form. In this verse, listen to this. There was a relative, a moda' of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. So here we have what's known as a gender discord right in the pages of the Bible. In chapter two, Boaz is called a relative using the masculine word moda. Now in chapter three, he is called a relative using the feminine word moda'at. Scholars are perplexed about this and I have read no commentary anywhere clearly explaining why this is the way it is. And so as I do, Tuesday night, you know, I started preparing for this sermon. I typed it seven weeks ago and I set it aside and I started preparing for it. Tuesday night, I didn't sleep at all. I stayed up all night long thinking about it. My wife knows I was there tossing and turning in bed and finally I got up really early and I woke up the whole house because we have six chihuahuas in bed with us and they all started scampering and woke her up early too. But I had this on my mind all night long trying to figure out why is this word used? And here's what I believe and I'm not telling you that this is correct but it's the only thing that makes logical sense to me. In chapter 2, Boaz is connected to Naomi's husband, Elimelech. Okay, here's what it said. It said there was a relative of Naomi's husband. Okay, but now in this chapter, he's called our relative. Yes, he's Naomi's relative through Elimelech, but he's also Ruth's relative through marriage. There's a connection between the two, which implies that there should be a knowledge on the part of Boaz towards his responsibility as their relative. Okay, an example of the word's meaning can be found right at the beginning of the Bible, which speaks of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The word for knowledge is the word da'at. It means uh, it's what moda'at is connected to. Now this word da'at, according to the Haw Theological Word Book of the Old Testament, is knowledge, listen to what they say, possessed by God from whom nothing can be hidden. He teaches it to man. It appears parallel with wisdom and understanding, instruction and law. 
Da'at is also used for moral cognition. They go on like this for several detailed paragraphs concerning this word da'at. So I believe that there are two possible reasons for using the feminine word instead of the masculine. The first is that Boaz pictures Christ, who possesses all knowledge. Therefore, the word is being tied not so much to his relationship between him and these women, but to the knowledge which is being conveyed concerning the process of redemption. For example, the Hebrew word for instruction or law is Torah. It's a feminine word. The second reason, and this may be completely idle speculation, it dawned on me while I was uh, blowing off the uh, parking lot at work about two hours after I typed up the first part of this, but it makes sense, is that he's making, or she is making a pun, which puns often occur in the Bible on the words Moab and Da'at, thus Mo-Da'at. Just speculation, but it sounds, sounds reasonable to me. Ruth is a Moabite and is the one Naomi is indicating is going to be redeemed. And Boaz possesses the knowledge, the feminine Torah knowledge, of the redemption process. Boaz has the knowledge concerning them as close family and what he is to do for them. But this knowledge does not imply an obligation on him, which he's required to act on first. One of the women has the right of marriage, and Naomi is implying that it belongs to Ruth. As Ruth has this right, then the first step towards such a marriage does not begin with or belong to Boaz. Such assertion of a right belongs to the possessor of the right. An example of this is the act of gleaning, something that is authorized under the law. Boaz owned a field, and it was his obligation under the law to allow those who desired to glean to let them do so. He could not forbid them from gleaning without violating the law but he was under no obligation to go after them in order to glean. The gleaners possessed the right, and so they had to initiate the exercising of that right. In other words, Boaz doesn't go into the town every day and say, I'm going out into the fields, and all you people without a job are going to come and glean so that you can eat today. That's not his obligation. The law gives his obligation. They must now accept that premise and go out and exercise it willingly. Okay? Ruth possessed the right to a near relative redeemer, which meant that she had to exercise or initiate the exercising of being redeemed as the law provided. In this, we can see the biblically evident truth that salvation, which is provided by God, he gives the law allowing that salvation, and which is in accord with his law, is a right that we possess, and which requires an action that we must initiate in order, in order for it to be acted upon. A good example of this is God's redemption of Israel at the Exodus. He gave them the law to place the blood on the lintels of the door houses. Okay? When he did, he also said this, when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The Lord gave the law, but the people had to respond to the law. They could have skipped this, and they would have died, or the firstborn would have died, exactly as he said. He made the law by his spoken word. It is now authorized. They must exercise that. And when they were brought through the sea, any one of them could have said, I'm not walking through there, and they could have stayed in Egypt. God allows us to be obedient to him, and he allows us to initiate the, the actions which his law requires in the redemptive process. It is a picture of man's free will in election. Though God knows what our free will choice will be, it does not negate that we have to make that choice. 
God does not selectively choose some for salvation and some for condemnation, as Calvinist doctrine incorrectly states. That is not true. Instead, the right to redemption is in the hands of the one who has the right, which it belongs to, after the law allows that right. We must choose to exercise our right of redemption in order to be redeemed. And you thought this was just a story about a guy meeting a lovely young girl from Moab. Rather, this is a story of you and me as we come before our gracious Redeemer, our Lord Jesus Christ. It should be noted here that if the marriage proposal works, it will not only ensure that Ruth finds rest, but that any children born in the marriage will raise up the seed of Naomi's dead son and thus preserve the entire family name. Now remember, she's searching for rest, and it says in the Bible in Hebrews 4.3, now we who believe do enter that rest. It's something that we have to initiate. It's not something that is initiated for us. The law allows it. We have to accept it. That's why we do sermon calls or altar calls in this church. It's because people have to willingly make a choice for Jesus Christ. I believe that. I don't believe you're going to sit in your chair and be zapped by God and all of a sudden you believe. You have to respond to the calling of the Holy Spirit. Verse 2 continues. In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Having noted that she was looking for a husband for Ruth, and then noting the fact that Boaz was in the know concerning her status and relationship to him, she now goes further in her matchmaking plans by noting that, oh boy, I happen to know where he's going to be this evening. It's an exceptional excuse for her to meet him. Why? Because it's nighttime, it's outside of the city, and it's away from where he lived, and he'd be out there working all alone. And on top of all of that, it would be after a feast with the day workers. After harvesting and bringing in the sheaves, they'd have a meal before going home. The owner, however, would stay at the threshing floor to guard the grain. At such a time, he'd be in good spirits. He'd be satisfied with the day behind him. He'd have a full stomach. He'd be happy from the wine. He would be in a good mood because of the satisfaction of an excellent day of harvesting. He'd lay among the grain content with the labor of his hands. It would make for the perfect moment and place for Ruth to exercise her right of redemption. Keep thinking of Jesus and when we call on him. It's all going to be cleared up in the last sermon that we do at the end of chapter 4. Naomi's words indicate that she had paid close attention to the movements of Boaz and also to the kindness that he had shown to Ruth. Her proposal was certain to have a positive outcome because she could tell that his heart was in no way unsympathetic to Ruth. Ruth began her gleaning at the start of the harvest and now she begins by a new direction, by... um, taking these actions during the threshing of the winnowing of barley. Now, I want you to remember that as well, because what did it say at the end of the last chapter? It says she stayed through the barley and the wheat harvests, and yet we're back in the barley harvest all of a sudden. Pay attention to these things, because that's important. Do you know what I'm talking about? Does everybody remember that? It says that Ruth stayed from the barley all the way through the wheat harvest, and all of a sudden we're back in the barley harvest. This is very important to remember these little details. And like I said, they're going to be explained later. During the intervening time, Naomi had observed enough to know that both of them were suited for each other and that both of them were inclined towards one another. And so she directs Ruth to the threshing floor of Boaz. A threshing floor, I want to describe this to you so you know what it is. It's a place where grain was taken, and it may sometimes have had a covered top to keep rain off of the grain. But regardless of whether it had a top or not, the sides would be left open. And it would be situated where breezes would come through the best, okay? Either on the top of a a hill or maybe out in an open field where the breezes would be very strong. 
in the land of Israel, the wind starts to rise from the sea about four o'clock or so in the afternoon, just like it does in Florida. And it continues until after sunset. The floor of a threshing floor would be mixed with chalk, both to keep weeds from growing up and also to keep the ground from cracking during the dry season. This would be compacted and it would be perfectly hard and it would be perfectly flat, okay? So you've got this nice flat area. In the middle of the floor, the stalks would be threshed to separate them from the grain and from the uh, chaff by breaking open the kernels of grain. After that, what they do is they take it and they toss it up into the air and the wind would blow away all of the lighter stuff and all of the heavier grain would fall back down into a pile, thus purifying the grain. Here in this spot of labor and industry, Boaz, the man of great wealth, as he's called earlier, participated along with his laborers in the winnowing of his barley, and then he would lay down by this large heap of grain and sleep for the night, satisfied and content. Our second thought is go down to the threshing floor, verses three and four. Verse three says, therefore wash yourself and anoint yourself, put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. Since the death of her husband, Ruth had probably worn widow's garments the entire time. For the first time since that occasion, she will now adorn herself in beautiful raiment and be prepared in a most radiant way. Her clothes would smell wonderful, like I do, because I always have patchouli on. Her face would glow from a bath, and her hair would be shiny from a handful of olive oil, just like my beard with a handful of oil in it every day. If she caught the notice of Boaz while she was hot, sweaty, and wearing widow's clothes as she gleaned, imagine how naturally lovely this woman must have been. And so with the added beauty, the only word that can describe her would be radiant. At the time of the covenant with Israel, God, through Ezekiel, describes them in just the same way. Listen to this and think of Ruth, okay? This is God at the time of the covenant with Israel. When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed, your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord God. Then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood, and I anointed you with oil. If the covenant with Israel was comparable to Ruth's appearance, then Ruth, a Gentile who is meeting with Boaz, must be picturing a new covenant with the Lord. Again, we're brought to ask why this story is included in the Bible. Listen to how Paul describes us as the church and how closely it matches what we would think of Ruth at this time. Husbands, Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. If this story were merely to introduce Ruth as an ancestor of David and then Jesus, then a short gene genealogical note, note somewhere maybe in the book of Chronicles would have sufficed. But instead, more detail is given to this story than any other such story of its type in the entire Bible. Every word and every detail is given to show us of a greater story of love, redemption, and restoration. Every person mentioned is emblematic of another figure or precept which leads to the work of Jesus Christ. It is truly a work of beauty. God has taken these real people, real human beings with their truly human needs and desires and has used them as examples of his redemption for all of the people of the world. As an appropriate parallel thought to this verse, Stark says this, the bride of Christ is pleasing to her bridegroom only when anointed with the spirit and clothed in the garments of salvation.
Without these, we cannot be a part of God's plan of redemption. But with them, we are his once and forever redeemed. Verse 3 continues, But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Now, one could ask why she would bother to put on her best garments if she were only to come to him in the dark of the night. Well, that assumes that Naomi's words mean that he would only see her at that time. Rather, she probably went at the time of the evening feast in order to be seen by him and maybe eat with him, but that she would not make herself and her intentions known until after that time. The term known then here is referring to the intentions of the evening, not the seeing of the person. She would be seen and it would be in such a a kapow loveliness that the meal and the drink would only make his sleep all that much sweeter. As the bearer of the right to request redemption, she could do so publicly. But the approach recommended by Naomi is one which is of heartstrings and of human urges, not one of just legal propriety. The question is, why would she do it this way? And the answer is that Boaz is not the closest relative to Ruth. There's one who's closer, and we're going to see that in a few verses next week. If she were to abruptly claim her right to Boaz based on the law, which she could do, right? He could just as abruptly say that she had to follow the letter of the law. However, if she were to follow the intent of the law mixed with a pleasing and humble manner, Boaz would still follow the letter of the law. He's a man of integrity and he is not going to violate the law, but he would do it in a way which is much more conducive to a favorable outcome for this marriage. If that does not sound like us, before the law, relying on the work of Jesus Christ rather than our own works. I'm not sure what better picture could ever be made anywhere at any time. Christ fulfills the law on our behalf. He is our rest, and we trust in him. We don't demand the law of him. He simply fulfilled it, and we request to be a part of that, which is exactly what's happening right here. Think of Christ. Think of Christ. Every single thing that happens in our life, think of Christ. He loves us enough to show us all of these pictures and then to actually fulfill them for us. Think of Christ. Verse 4, Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies. At the end of the work, Boaz would be alone to watch the grain and it would be getting dark or it would already be dark. Any lamp that he used would be put out and he would hit the proverbial hay. Now at this time, she would need to mark the spot mentally and to know it because Otherwise, it would be too dark to avoid stepping on him as she went to finish these instructions, right? Verse 4 continues, And you shall go in, uncover his feet, and lie down. To uncover his feet is literally the places of his feet. Try to remember that. It would be comparable to saying in our modern lingo, the foot of his bed. Boaz would probably be sleeping in his clothes, and he'd merely have a cover over his feet to keep them warm through the night. With this cover, she could lay next to his feet and cover herself as a sign of submission. It would be as a servant might do when sleeping in a room with their master. Some scholars take great, great offense against this particular instruction here and find blame in both Naomi and in Ruth for being so unwise and acting in such an unbiblical manner. You'd be surprised how many comments say that. This is what happens when we take and we insert our own cultural norms into someone else's cultural setting. The action, as instructed by Naomi and carried out by Ruth, would have been perfectly acceptable in the culture. She is offering herself to the one who has the right to redeem her by taking advantage of the very law of redemption which the culture was guided by. 
Boaz had meticulously cared for Ruth and had revealed his intentions to her through his actions, but it is her right of redemption, not his. He is the one to perform the redemption, if so asked, and he had implicitly demonstrated his desire to do so through his care of her, maybe hoping that she would respond. And so it is with the Spirit. Keep thinking of yourself. Guess what? He calls us in anticipation of responding. He gives us his words. He tells us what Jesus did. It is like Boaz giving her all of that grace in the field. And he's doing the same thing with us. That person that was sitting in here a while ago, she was given more grace this morning and a little bit on the board. And she got grace with the hugs and with the music. And the spirit is calling her, but it is up to her to respond. And that is what's going on right here. Christ has the power to redeem, but he allows us the choice to ask for it. This is perfectly evident here and throughout all the rest of Scripture. It makes no sense at all to say that one would call on the name of the Lord to be saved if they were first regenerated in order to call on the name of the Lord. Boaz offered in his own way, and he waited for Ruth to respond. Having said that, it is certain that Ruth, the hard yet humble gleaner in the field, would never have summoned up the courage to go to Boaz even at Naomi's instruction, unless she wanted to have him in marriage and unless she knew that she would be received favorably by him. In essence, Boaz gave her the faith to come forward to be redeemed by his actions towards her. It is an exact match to Paul's words of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God and not of works, lest any one should boast. Through his loving actions towards us, we are given faith to call out to him for salvation. And through his grace, we're saved when we call out. The entire process is credited to the Lord. This is seen right here in the story of Boaz and Ruth. Nothing improper, nothing vulgar can be deduced from this passage. It is the culmination of a demonstration of interest by both parties for a legitimate union provided for by the law under which they both lived at this time. Naomi knew that both parties were in favor of it, and she simply followed the cultural norms in order for their hearts to be united as one. Verse 4 continues, and he will tell you what you should do. With her offer made as she was instructed to do, Boaz would in turn fill in the finer points of whatever would occur. Naomi had no fear that Boaz would act in an irresponsible manner. Whatever he did would be an act which would be followed up on in a manner appropriate to the actions he took that night towards Ruth. At the threshing floor where the chaff from the grain is parted, there the grain is made pure and ready to eat. The chaff is blown away and the winnowing is started until it is all gone and the process is complete. And so it is with the harvest field of man as well. There is good grain and there is chaff also. And the two are separated, destined for heaven or for hell. Let us decide now that to heaven we will go. It is a choice, and the choice should be to receive Jesus, who is gracious enough to leave the choice up to us. Our third thought today is Ruth agrees. It's our last verse of the day, verse 5. And she said to her, all that you say to me, I will do. It's obvious to Ruth that Naomi desires her to claim the right of redemption and that she believes that she will benefit from it just as if she were to exercise it herself. The name of her husband and two dead sons can live through the wife of the dead son. It is also evident that Boaz has an affection for Ruth and that Ruth probably felt that same affection for Boaz. 
Having received his grace certainly led to feelings of affection for him by her. None of this would have escaped Naomi's eyes, and she knew that Boaz would be willing to go to extra lengths to procure a wife, uh, procure Ruth as a wife. Excuse me, I had to burp there. In this hopeful union, there is a chance for the family line to continue despite the sad times of the past. And so because of these things, she has given instructions to Ruth which are in line with the norms of the culture and which are in no way improper or immodest. Instead, they're instructions which have used the law and which have also used the charm of Ruth to bring about a good end to this matter. Now, as we proceed on, we're going to see more specifics which should lead us to a clearer picture, each sermon, of why God included this book of Ruth in the Bible. And yes, each of those specifics will show us hints of the work of Jesus Christ. He is the Lord not only to Jews, but to Gentiles as well. Though foreigners to the covenant at Sinai, we can be grafted into the commonwealth of Israel through the work of the Redeemer. In him, Jew and Gentile have an equal standing before God. And if you've never received this favored status and called on Jesus Christ as Lord, I would ask that you would allow me to explain to you how you can. In him, there is an end to the separation, a welcoming into God's family, and a right to an inheritance that will never fade and it will never be cut off. So let me tell you about how you too can participate in this wondrous work of Jesus Christ. Take you right back to the beginning. Bible says that man is created. Man is created and he fell. He disobeyed God and there was a separation between God and man at that moment. The Bible says that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. We didn't even need to sin on our own. We're in Adam. Adam sinned and so we received his sinful state and we're all in that state. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. It says in the wages of sin is death. We die because we have sin in us. Little babies die and they don't come back out of the grave and that implies that we have inherited Adam's sin. All right? If that wasn't the case, then little babies that died would pop right back to life, but they don't. We have inherited this sin, all have sinned, and all fall short of the glory of God. But then we have that wonderful word I always bring up every week, but, three little letters, but, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All we have to do is just reach out and say, I cannot save myself, I want you to forgive me, and I want you to grant me that eternal life that I know you have because you came out of the grave proving that you didn't have sin. It says that all who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. This is what God would ask of you, to exercise the faith that he desires of you, to simply say, I know that this is true. I know that my Redeemer lives, and I want to be a part of that. All right, all who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. If you've never done it, please do it today. Please. You don't know your last day. The girl I talked to just a little while ago, I told her that verse, today is the day of God's favor. Now is the time of salvation. We don't know if we're going to die that afternoon. We might die 10 minutes from now. We don't know. Call on the Lord Jesus. Next week, we're going to look at Ruth 3, 6 through 13. It's midnight at the threshing floor. That'll be our eighth Ruth sermon. I'll tell you as I do each week that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. He knows your trials. He knows your troubles and he knows your woes. And he's there with you through them. So cling to him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you, all right? Now, I have a poem, as I do each week, and Joshua doesn't know this, but I did an entire poem of the book of Genesis, and we finished that, and now I'm working on with Ruth. I take all of the verses each week that we look at, and I make a poem out of them. So pretty soon, in another uh, seven sermons or so, we're going to have a poem of the book of Ruth. Then Naomi to her, oh, this is called, Go Down to the Threshing Floor. 
Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, to her said, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you and not difficult instead? I will give instruction on what you are to do. Now Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not a relative whom we know? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight. Yes, at the threshing floor. Yes, it is so. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself also. Put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make the man yourself to know until he has finished eating and drinking and is ready to snore. Then it shall be when he lies down for his rest so sweet that you shall notice the place where he lies too. And you shall go in, uncover his feet, then lie down and he will tell you what you should do. And she said to her, all that you say to me, I will do. Ruth's actions showed a daughter-in-law both faithful and true. Like Ruth, we are to submit ourselves to the Lord and to walk before him in the spirit and in righteousness. To learn how we can, we should attend to his word. And in doing so, our souls he will bless. Yes, God has given us this wondrous, has given this wondrous treasure to us in hopes that we will daily seek his face and to fellowship with him through our Lord Jesus, living in his blessings and showered with his grace. Thank you, O God, for all you've done for us. Yes, Heavenly Father, we thank you through your Son, our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, our precious Jesus. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this beautiful story, this ongoing story of just marvelous wisdom that you've placed into the pages of the Bible to show us details that spread from the very first pages of Genesis all the way to the last page of the Bible. How you love the people of the world enough to do the things that you have done. And not only to redeem Jewish people, but to redeem Gentiles as well. To call us all as your own and to lead us back to yourself. It is so wonderful to see these pictures, Lord. Thank you for them. Thank you for your hand upon us. Thank you for the glory and the splendor that you have displayed in our lives. Lord, please be with each person here as they proceed out into the world and uh, take good care of them. And uh, Lord, just be exalted on their lips and in their hearts throughout the week ahead. Help each one of them to do something good for somebody else this week and to tend to somebody else's needs. And if they're in a time of affliction, help them to take their eyes off of their affliction and to look at others and it'll ease their burden, certainly. We see the greatest affliction of all in the cross of your son, Jesus. And he was willing to do that for us. Help us to do that for other people as well. We love you and we praise you and we exalt you in Jesus' name. Amen. We get the instruction for the Lord's Supper from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we read these words. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and he would have given thanks over it. He would have said these words. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it and he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said these words. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, of you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. 
But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Unbelievable. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.